Matthew chapter 5, beginning in verse 31, just reading two verses today, verses 31 through 32. Well, at least that's going to be our main text today. As you're turning there, um, it's been said before, I think by John Stott, if I'm remembering correctly, that a preacher's job is to build bridges. So I don't know if you know that or not, but that's my job. I'm a bridge builder. What do I mean by that? The preacher must create a bridge between two worlds. The world of the biblical text and the world of the contemporary reader or hearer. Any bridge, if it's to be effective, must be firmly grounded on both sides of a canyon. So for the preacher to build a bridge between the modern world and the biblical world, he must be very careful, therefore, to be students of both. He must practice sound interpretation of the text, carefully considering the cultural context in which the scripture was written. And he must practice sound application of the text, carefully considering the cultural context in which he is preaching. Now, today's text is a challenging one. For in it, Jesus speaks to us about the uncomfortable topic of divorce and remarriage. So the text is Matthew 5, verses 31 through 32. It is a text for which bridge building is both easy and difficult. Let me explain that. It's easy because we can relate to the culture which Jesus speaks to. First century divorces were incredibly common. Both in the Jewish and the Greco-Roman cultures, divorce was rampant. So divorce was quite prevalent in that day, and therefore any discussion about divorce, even in Jesus' day, was uncomfortable and controversial. And that's what makes the bridge that we're going to build this morning difficult. Just as in Jesus' day, this is a controversial, complex topic that can easily become emotionally charged. So, any sermon on this text is a bridge, if you will, that many don't want to walk across. As a matter of fact, many would rather just burn that bridge down. I doubt there is a single person in this room, if I were, and I'm not going to, but if I were to ask for people to raise your hands, I doubt there is a single person person in this room that hasn't either been directly or indirectly affected by divorce. It leaves many hurt people in its wake. So I'm aiming for two things this morning with this bridge we're trying to build. I want to be as biblical as possible as we touch on the issue, and I want to be as loving as possible. And those two things are not at odds. The most loving thing to do is to be as biblical as possible. Now, before we read this very important text, I want to remind you that this is part of the Sermon on the Mount. We're studying this famous sermon of Jesus's as part of our ongoing series called Seeing and Savoring Jesus Christ. In this series, we are walking through the life of Jesus, verse by verse, chronologically, using all four of the Gospels. So we come to this passage today, and in the context of this passage is that Jesus is giving us six examples of what he taught us in chapter 5, verses 17 through 20. It was here in that passage of Scripture that Jesus told us that he himself came not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it okay, and to accomplish it. Therefore, his followers are to be keepers and teachers of the law of God, but to do so in a way that our law-keeping flows out of the heart, out of new hearts, and now we want to and are enabled to keep God's law. Only then will our law-keeping exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees of Jesus' day, who focused on external superficial law-keeping, but kingdom citizens are to keep it from the heart. So the rest of chapter 5 
after that section I just mentioned right there is made up of six examples where Jesus is showing us what law-keeping from the heart looks like. And two weeks ago we saw Jesus deal with murder, teaching us that if we have anger and contempt and malice in our hearts, we are virtual murderers. Then he looked at adultery last week, where we saw that to have any kind of lustful desire makes us virtual adulterers. And today Jesus continues on that topic of adultery, but he ties it to another Old Testament law on divorce and remarriage. So let's read now Matthew chapter 5, verse 31. Please stand if you would as we read these two short verses. This is our Lord Jesus speaking, and this is the third of the six examples that he is giving, third of the six contrasts he draws. Matthew chapter 5, verse 31 says this. It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, I ask this morning that you would give me a voice to speak. And I don't say that because I have allergies or I'm hoarse or anything like that. I say that because I am as susceptible as anybody to be a man pleaser. So I ask you, Lord, to give me a voice to speak this morning. And give us ears to hear this morning, all of us. Father, we don't want to add to your word as some have done. And turn this text into a club to badger the innocent. But Father, we do not want to do what some have done and take away from this text. And create a license for people to do whatever they want with your institution of marriage. To help us to be biblical. We ask this, Lord, because in and of ourselves we wander. We need your help. So Holy Spirit, guide us now as we preach your word. We pray in your name, in Jesus' name, amen. Be seated, please. Now, children in here, have any of you guys ever seen pictures of your parents, perhaps when they were younger? Have you ever seen pictures maybe when they were your age or maybe a little bit older? Okay, what's something you notice about, I don't know, let's say the clothes they're wearing? Do they look funny or do they look pretty cool? What are your thoughts? They're older or the clothes are older? So or do they look good? Would you wear those clothes? What is, if you were in that time period, you, you need to be a lawyer, buddy, because you're just kind of going around the answers here. Okay, you normally don't like those styles, right? Matter of fact, when I was a kid, I used to hate, I look at my parents in the bell bottoms, and my dad had these sideburns that came down to here and these black glasses. I just thought he looked like the greatest dork in the world looking like that. And, and I just, uh, children, you shouldn't think that of your parents. Um, but that's how I felt, and I've repented since then, even right now in my heart. Um, so... I, I couldn't stand the styles and the big old vampire teeth collars. And, and I thought when I was going to be an adult that my children would never think that of me because the one Michael Jackson glove would never go out of style, right? Okay, and the rolled up jeans and the mullet. I mean, surely the mullet would always be a respectable hairstyle. But of course, our kids look back at 
our styles and laugh at those things. Well, sadly, and this is not a joke, many people, especially today, look at traditional marriage as set up in the scriptures and look at it like it's a 1970s style. It's just something that's going away. And perhaps they even laugh at it. We stand on the cusp of one of the greatest single moral revolutions of our time. The redefinition of marriage from the union of one woman and one man for life to the union of one man and another man or one woman and another woman or whatever else our depraved world can conjure up because it seems like the definition changes almost daily. We stand now on the cusp of one of the greatest moral revolutions at least in our nation's history. But to a degree, the church stands voiceless because another revolution regarding marriage has already come and gone. And we did little to stop it. And by and large, the church, unfortunately, even embraced it. And I'm speaking about the divorce revolution. In his book, I think called The Greatest Generation, if I'm remembering correctly, Tom Brokaw, who wrote that book, which is a book featuring the generation that fought World War II, uh, he features in there some ladies who were wives of some of the servicemen who were serving overseas and how they would get together all the time to, to encourage one another. It even says that they prayed together for their husbands. And, and later he interviews these ladies in the modern time. Of course, he wrote this book back in the 90s. And he asked this group of ladies, what's the biggest change you've seen in our country since way back then when you guys all gathered together during World War II. Now, of all the great technological changes and societal changes that could possibly have been discussed, you know what they said? Divorce. They said they never could have imagined divorcing their husbands back in the 1940s. It never would have even crossed their minds. And they said that's the biggest change they've seen in our society. Few churches today have any courage to speak the truth about divorce. And therefore they lack the moral conviction to face the next revolution, which is on our doorstep. So this text today is a much needed word. It is a revolutionary word. In order to see the full nature of Jesus' teaching here, we're going to look carefully at this text this morning. But we're also going to jump over to another text Matthew chapter 19, verses 3 through 9. So I want you to keep your finger in that text because when I go to it, I want you to go to it as well. But we're going to start in Matthew chapter 5. I'll let you find Matthew chapter 19, mark that spot, but we're going to begin in Matthew chapter 5, verse 31. Matthew chapter 5, verse 31. This is what Jesus says. And he's continuing that formula and all these six contrasts, these six examples that he's giving. He says, You have heard it said, but I say to you. So here he does the same thing. It's a little bit different, the wording, but it's pretty much the same thing. He says in verse 31, It was also said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. And we know when Jesus says, it was also said, he's referring back to the Old Testament law. Jesus here is referring to Deuteronomy chapter 24. It's the only Old Testament passage that specifically governs divorce and remarriage. It's not the only Old Testament passage that speaks about divorce. There are actually quite a bit. It's the only law, though, in the Old Testament Mosaic law that governs divorce and remarriage. 
It's a challenging passage, this Deuteronomy passage. And to us, it probably seems a little convoluted. So I'm going to read it to you now. You don't have to turn to this one. You can if you want to. But I'm going to go ahead and read Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 through 4. 1 through 4. Deuteronomy 24, verse 1 says this. When a man takes a wife and marries her, if then she finds no favor in his eyes because he has found some indecency in her, and he writes her a certificate of divorce and puts it in her hand, And sends her out of his house. And she departs out of his house. And if she goes and becomes another man's wife. And the latter man hates her. And writes her a certificate of divorce. And puts it in her hand. And sends her out of his house. Or if the latter man dies. Who took her to be his wife. Then the former husband who sent her away. May not take her again to be his wife. After she has been defiled. For this is an abomination before the Lord. And you shall not bring sin upon the land that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance. Now, we don't have time to go into a detailed exposition of that text. We're not doing a verse-by-verse through Deuteronomy right now. I'm sure someday we will. But I just want to point out a few things in this text. And then I'm going to talk about how there were two main schools of thought in Jewish society regarding this passage of Scripture. First, I want you to notice that the text clearly says that the reason for the wife no longer finding favor in the man's eyes has to do with him finding some sort of indecency in her. That literally means exposed nakedness, right? Seems kind of an odd word to us, and there's many different ideas as to what this meant in the Hebrew. Some believe it simply refers to some sort of uncleanliness in her, which leaves the comment to be rather subjective. Others feel it's referring solely to sexual immorality, and that's where I lean meaning that there has been some sort of sexual infidelity in the marriage. If so, then this Deuteronomy passage is a very merciful provision in God's law, for we know that adultery was actually punishable by death. Yet rarely, and historians will tell us, rarely did the Jews ever stone men or women for adultery, yet divorce was quite common. So it seems that whatever indecency means, and this is the most important point I want to make, this passage does not command the man to divorce his wife. What we have here is case law in its language referring to what can happen. There is only one command given in this Deuteronomy passage. Deuteronomy 24 verse 4. It says, Then her former husband who sent her away may not take her again to be his wife. So the only command in this text is that the former husband is not allowed to remarry the wife if she's divorced from her second husband Or if her second husband dies. So that's the only command in the text. There is no command that tells the man that he must divorce his wife, even if she's been sexually immoral. There is an allowance of divorce, which is a concession and not a command. So this law given by Moses in no place, I'll say it again, commands divorce. This law is actually in place To protect the woman down the road. For if a woman in that time had no property, well, we know that women in that time had no property rights or any means of income on her own. So a certificate of divorce was given to her so that she could remarry. And that certificate would protect her from her first husband coming back and demanding anything that she acquired through her new marriage. So let's say she gets married again and her new husband now provides her with land and maybe even new children. She has children now and it's maybe some money. And now he dies. The first husband, they were trying to protect her from coming back and saying, well, hey, now all that now belongs to me. Which, by the way, was very common 
in ancient cultures in that area. Matter of fact, we can read about that exact thing happening in some of the Sumerian texts that are available to us today. So, with that background from Deuteronomy 24, there were two main Jewish schools of thought regarding divorce and remarriage. First, there was the school of Hillel. Hillel looked at Deuteronomy 24 and viewed indecency very liberally so that it could essentially mean anything. So the Jews of Jesus' day could divorce their wives for any cause. So when the Pharisees approached Jesus in Matthew 19, verse 3, and asked, is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause, they are actually asking a technical question. The term for any cause was actually a legal term. Just like in our day, there's a legal term called no-fault divorce, which, by the way, is essentially the same thing as the school of Hillel, that you could divorce your wife for any reason. Hillel said, yes, you could divorce your wife for any cause. Matter of fact, in the Mishnah itself, one can read this, that a woman can be put away if she burns the soup or ruins the meal. There's a lot of wives that would be in trouble in this room, probably. She burns the toast, you can divorce her, according to the school of Hillel. One rabbi, a rabbi by the name of Rabbi Akiba, he even said you could put away your wife if you come across a woman who's more attractive. So that's how liberal and loose the laws were in the school of Hillel. But there was another school, a more conservative school, called the School of Shammai. And they taught that sexual infidelity was the only grounds for divorce given in Deuteronomy 24. They taught that a man must divorce his wife if she were unfaithful. So not only did they see that sexual infidelity was the only grounds for divorce, they actually taught that you had to divorce your wife if she was sexually immoral. And that the man must remarry. Now, which of those two schools do you think was the most popular in Jesus' day? Hillel. Which of those two schools would be most accepted in our day? Do we have to ask? Now, we need to understand this, that both parties, both schools, and let me say this very clearly, both groups did not view divorce and remarriage as adultery. You'll notice Deuteronomy chapter 24 doesn't call it adultery. And so neither school viewed divorce and then subsequent remarriage as adultery. So here Jesus comes in verse 32 and says, But I say to you, again exercising his authority over the law, he comes and he teaches something that would have been radical to both the schools. He says this, That everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. His teaching would have shocked both schools. It was shocking to that culture, and quite honestly, it's shocking to our culture too. Jesus' view of marriage is radically different than the world's. So with that, I want to go to our first point this morning in your notes. The world views marriage as an arrangement governed by man, whereas Jesus views it as a covenant instituted by God. The world views marriage as some sort of arrangement that is governed by man, whereas Jesus views it as a covenant instituted by God. Now, I want you to turn now to Matthew 19. In this case, Jesus is speaking directly to the scribes and the Pharisees. And quite honestly, even in the Sermon on the Mount, although he is addressing his disciples in the Sermon on the Mount, he is indirectly speaking to the scribes and Pharisees who are probably there listening in, Because as he interprets the law correctly, he is at the same time rebuking their incorrect 
interpretations and alterations and additions that they had given to the law. So let's read now Matthew chapter 19, beginning in verse 3. And the Pharisees came up to him and tested him by asking, Is it lawful to divorce one's wife for any cause? He answered, Have you not read that he who created them from the beginning made them male and female? And said, Therefore a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh? So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. They said to him, Why then did Moses command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? He said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And now, Jesus here, he repeats almost verbatim what he said in the Sermon on the Mount. Verse 9. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife, except for sexual immorality, and marries another, commits adultery. And to help us see how radical Jesus' teaching on marriage and divorce and remarriage was to the people of his day, look at verse 10. The disciples said to him, If such is the case of a man with his wife, it is better not to marry. That's how radical this view that Jesus is putting forth was for the people of that day. That his own disciples said, it's better not to even get married then. The first thing I want you to notice in this passage is that the Pharisees wanted to focus on the grounds for divorce. Whereas Jesus wants to focus on the institution of marriage and so he does it. Now the second thing I want you to notice is that Jesus immediately takes him to the foundational truth that undergirds marriage. Verse 4, he answered, have you not read? Ultimately, the issue of marriage and divorce and remarriage isn't about man's opinion, but about God's word. What does God have to say? So Jesus takes them to Genesis chapter 2 to show them five things about marriage. So in your notes there, there's going to be five things listed. Five things about marriage that I want to note this morning. First of all, number one, marriage is designed by God. Verse 4, he who created them from the beginning made them male and female. And he's the one that tells them what to do. They're to, to leave their mother and father and to cleave. So marriage is not an invention created by man, but an institution established by God. It is not of man, but it is for man. It has existed in every culture, by the way, since the dawn of time. Because man is created in the image of God and therefore we are covenantal beings. And we know in our hearts, even if we suppress the truth, that marriage exists between one man and one woman for life. Every culture has known this, even if they suppress the truth. And so all the fighting for gay rights and gay marriage today is a radical suppression of the truth that every man already knows in his heart. Knows from simply looking at biology books. Marriage then is not a social arrangement created by man, but it is a covenantal relationship created for man by God. So that's the first thing. Number two, marriage is complementary by design. He who created them from the beginning made them male and female. God did not create a unisex world. There are God-ordained differences and complementarity between the sexes. Again, we know this in our hearts, but man suppresses these truths. Natural law tells us that one of the primary purposes of marriage is to produce godly offspring. 
And of course, this cannot happen in a same-sex relationship. Therefore, there is really no such thing as same-sex marriage. You can put a label on it and call it that, but there is no such thing. It doesn't exist. Third thing, marriage is exclusive by design. Verse 5, and said, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife. Wife is singular here. He is to hold fast to one wife. And we read that the two shall become one flesh. Not the three, not the four, not the five shall become one flesh. The two shall become one flesh. A spouse is not permitted to have another spouse on the side. He is to be pledged, covenanted to only one. Number four, marriage is permanent by design. Again, verse five, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. So it's the leave and cleave principle. The old words we use are leave and cleave, or in the ESV it's hold fast. It literally means to be permanently stuck together, to be glued You know, I was in college, uh, one of my friends, I have no idea what he was doing, how he did this, but somehow he spilled super glue on his hand. And all of his fingers were glued together. And we had to go with him to the ER, and and they used stuff, something there, to try to get that glue off, and they rubbed it and rubbed it, and finally they were able to get those fingers separated. But I remember his skin was all torn up and bloodied in between his fingers there. In marriage, friends, there is a physical, emotional, and spiritual bonding that happens And that bond is not to be broken. To break that bond does violence to both parties. Malachi 2.16, I think this is why the Lord says this in Malachi 2.16. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, the God of Israel covers his garments with violence. Divorce is a violent act. Number five, marriage is covenantal by design. So there is this holding fast This oneness that takes place, there is a fundamental transfer of allegiance from parents to spouse. And they begin a new family with a new covenant of oneness. A covenant together to the things that we've just mentioned. They're covenanting to be faithful, to be permanent, to be exclusive. Those are the things that a couple are covenanting together to do. So Jesus, by focusing his listeners on marriage, has just shot down divorce. So the Pharisees responded with their warped understanding of Deuteronomy 24. They said to him, why then did Moses, notice what they say, command one to give a certificate of divorce and to send her away? But as we've already seen, Deuteronomy 24 does no such thing. So Jesus responds, verse 8, because of your hardness of heart, Moses, what? Allowed you to divorce your wives. But from the beginning, it was not so. And then Jesus repeats what we've already read in Matthew chapter 5. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery. Sinful man wants divorce due to the lust in his heart. So he adds what he wants to God's law and takes away what he wants from God's law. They had turned the law of God designed to restrict divorce and turned it into a precept for seeking divorce. So by showing them the true purpose, the creation purpose of marriage, and by showing them what Moses actually taught, Jesus shoots down their no-fault, any-cause divorce. Which brings me to the next point of contrast in your notes here this morning. The world views divorce 
as an unconditional option for man's happiness, whereas Jesus views it as a conditional concession to man's fallenness. The world views divorce as an unconditional option for man's happiness, but Jesus views it as a conditional concession to man's fallenness. Jesus recognizes that divorce is allowed by Moses, but not because God designed it that way. The fact that Jewish women could be given a divorce certificate did not mean that God thought or thinks that divorce is a good idea. He designed marriage, as we stated earlier, to be exclusive and permanent. The forever design is what was best for both the couple and the children that that union would produce. And therefore, the breakup of a marriage is always a disaster. There are always disastrous consequences regardless of who is at fault. In regards to God's law here and why divorce was codified in Deuteronomy 24, we have to take care to distinguish between the marriage breakup, which is always wrong, and divorce, which is the legal recognition that a marriage has broken up. Mosaic law did not say it was acceptable to break up a marriage. It merely prescribed the legal process once that marriage had broken up through sexual sin. So divorce, friends, is a concession to man's sinful state. So staying in Matthew 19, we read, Because of your hardness of heart, Moses allowed you to divorce your wives. Because of your sinfulness, divorce is only allowable because sin is so destructive. But divorce is never, let me say this as clearly as I can, divorce is never compulsory. And the offended party should be willing to forgive if forgiveness is sought. The Jews should have known this, shouldn't they? Again, I love how at the beginning of this passage in Matthew chapter 5, verse 17, Jesus talks about the law and the prophets, meaning he's referring back to the whole of the Old Testament. So the Jews, as they're looking at the Mosaic law, and they're considering what the whole Old Testament, which they accepted as Scripture, has to say, they should have known that the prophetic book of Hosea was written to help them see that despite their own spiritual adultery, God was merciful to them. So they too should be merciful and seek reconciliation if the offending spouse is repentant. But they didn't want that. They wanted to get a new spouse. So divorce is allowed, but there is a strict restriction to it. Now back to Matthew chapter 5. And this is that passage that's repeated in Matthew 19. Verse 32 of Matthew chapter 5. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife except, and here's the only exception Jesus gives us, except on the ground of sexual immorality makes her commit adultery. And whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Jesus gives us one exception. Sexual immorality. The word in Greek is porneia. Okay, or sometimes translated fornication. Now some commentators wonder why Jesus didn't use the technical term for adultery here, which is moicheu. And wonder if Jesus doesn't have something else in mind here. But that's really not a problem because the term here of sexual immorality, porneia, from where we get our word pornography, um, this word here was often used in a more general way. And plus, let's think about it. When there is sexual immorality inside of a marriage, what is that? It's adultery. So Jesus doesn't have to use the technical term here. And I think Jesus using this term here, just this general term of sexual immorality, that's what helps me to think what's referred to in Deuteronomy 24 isn't just some sort of uncleanliness. That indecency that Moses speaks of is sexual immorality. 
So Jesus here is referring to sexual infidelity in the marriage and says that this is the only exception with which to allow someone to lawfully divorce. When sexual infidelity exists, the covenant one flesh bond has been broken and Jesus says the offending spouse can, but does not have to, seek divorce. Now there are some in the Christian world who take a very hard no divorce stance saying that there are no exceptions whatsoever. They even dismiss Jesus' exception here. They would say that the parallel passages in Luke 16, verse 18, and in Mark chapter 10, verses 11 and 12, that those two parallel passages give no exception. There's no exception clause listed in those passages. So I'll read one of them for you. Luke 16, verse 18. It says this, Jesus speaking, Everyone who divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And he who marries a woman divorced from her husband commits adultery. So there's no exception clause in that passage or in the one in Mark. So some believe that Matthew's exception clause here is either an invention of Matthew himself or some sort of later scribal insertion. But I think sound exegesis and our confidence in the word of God doesn't bear this out. I think there's a better way to understand why the exception clause is left out of Luke and out of Mark. And that would be because everyone already knew that sexual immorality was an accepted ground for divorce. So when Luke and Mark record Jesus' words without the exception clause, the readers would have supplied it in their mind. Their cultural context would have supplied that exception clause in their minds. They would have known that Jesus was speaking about divorce for any reason other than sexual immorality. Let me give you a contemporary example. If I say to you, minors should not be allowed to drink, you know what I mean. I do not have to supply the phrase alcoholic beverages to the end of that. When I say minors should not be allowed to drink, no one in our cultural context would think that I'm calling for the dehydration of children. So too, that clause would have been culturally supplied because all schools of thought, Hillel and Shammai, all schools of thought agreed that sexual immorality was always a valid reason for divorce. So God allowed this exception because of man's fallen condition. Man had become a covenant breaker with God, and so too he would become a covenant breaker with his wife. So God provided a way out when the covenant was broken through sexual sin. Now, there's one other biblical exception. Do you know what that is? 1 Corinthians chapter 7. I'm going to read it to you. Paul, speaking to the Corinthians, says, If any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should not divorce him. And then in verse 15 he says this, But if the unbelieving partner separates, let it be so. In such case, the brother or sister is not enslaved. God has called you to peace. So the exception that Paul gives under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit is abandonment. So if an unbeliever abandons the marriage, the believing spouse is freed from that marriage. So the only two biblical exceptions are one, sexual infidelity, and two, abandonment by an unbelieving spouse. Now think about those two things. What do they violate? The first one, sexual infidelity, violates the marriage covenant in that it violates God's design for exclusivity. You have broken the covenant that called for you to be exclusive. And the second one, abandonment, violates the marriage covenant in that it violates God's design for permanence. Leaving and cleaving. In both cases, the offender has broken the covenant. 
And the offended spouse is therefore free. He or she doesn't have to divorce, but they are free to. But the next question is, can he or she remarry? Well, let's consider that question here. And that's the next point of contrast. The world views remarriage after any divorce as inconsequential. Whereas Jesus views remarriage after unlawful divorce as infidelity. The world views remarriage after any divorce as inconsequential. Whereas Jesus views remarriage after unlawful divorce as infidelity. Jesus calls remarriage after unlawful divorce adultery. This ties it to the previous statement of Jesus' own adultery in Matthew chapter 5, verses 27 through 30. You see, the Jews didn't realize that their lustful desires caused them to commit adultery. And neither did they realize that their misuse of the divorce provision in Deuteronomy chapter 24 also caused them to enter into adulterous relationships. Jesus is very clear. He says, everyone who divorces his wife, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. Quite simple, divorce creates adulterous relationships. Divorce creates adulterous relationships all around. Jesus says that the husband who unlawfully divorces his wife makes her commit adultery. Now how do his actions cause her to commit adultery? Some believe this simply means that she is the victim of adultery because the Greek could be translated here, he adulterizes her. But the more natural reading is that she is made to commit adultery by him. How so? Well, again, we think about the Jewish culture. There was no such thing as alimony. The wife didn't have any rights in the Jewish courts in those days. The only means of provision, therefore, for a woman who was divorced was to either get remarried or to go into a life of prostitution. Those were her only means of living or providing for herself or her children if they were still with her. In a lot of cases, the husband would keep the children, at least the boys. They were an asset to him. Of course, if she did that, if she were to go into prostitution or be remarried after an unlawful divorce, she would by necessity be entering into an adulterous relationship. Of course, the husband, if he were to remarry too, would likewise be committing adultery. But more than that, Jesus says the person who marries the divorced woman, or the divorced man for that matter, also becomes an adulterer. He says here, whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. Do you see how remarriage after unlawful divorce creates multiple adulterous relationships? My friends, yes, in our culture, we think divorce, all right, it's between one man and one woman, and it's only going to affect them. But we know, we know that it has waves of effect on hundreds of other people. As a matter of fact, Jesus says it actually puts other people into adulterous relationships. Now, some believe that this last clause here, whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery, actually prohibits any divorced person from ever remarrying regardless of whether the divorce was lawful or not. And there's a, there's a pretty good debate going on about this. Some of my heroes in the faith uh, would argue that very thing. And some of my heroes of the faith would argue otherwise. I would argue that anyone unlawfully divorced shouldn't remarry. But that those who divorce for the reasons Jesus allows are free to remarry. Those who think differently would say that Jesus doesn't provide the exception clause here in the second part of his statement. When he talks about remarriage, he doesn't provide the exception clause. But I say to you that everyone who divorces his wife, here's the exception clause, except on the ground of sexual immorality, makes her commit adultery. Now he's starting a new thought. And 
Whoever marries a divorced woman commits adultery. And people say, well, he doesn't provide the exception clause on that last thought. Therefore, no remarriage whatsoever after divorce. But I think grammatically, it doesn't have to be repeated. I think you can make a good grammatical, exegetical case for this, that once the exception clause is provided in the first case, it is assumed in the second one. Let me go back to my example a minute earlier. What I said earlier, minors should not be allowed to drink. Let's say this time I say that same thing, but I give a clarifying clause. Minors should not be allowed to drink alcoholic beverages. And now I'm going to add another thought at the end of that. Minors should not be allowed to drink alcoholic beverages, and no one should be allowed to drink and drive. Do I have to provide the explanation clause again about alcoholic beverages for you to understand that I'm not talking about people just drinking anything when they're driving? Obviously, I'm talking about the alcohol. I believe the same grammatical structure exists in this text in the Greek, and therefore the exception clause is assumed for the second thought that Jesus gives us. Now, I am very much open to having my mind changed about that. But I read everything Piper wrote on that, and Piper couldn't change my mind. So John Piper can't change my mind. I'm not sure you can. But I'm not saying I'm infallible either. One of these days, we're all going to get to heaven and find out who was right and wrong on these very sensitive and touchy issues. In summary, remarriage after unlawful divorce always results in adultery. But if the marriage covenant is broken, friends, by sexual immorality then I believe divorce is permissible. It is not commanded. It is permissible. And I think that someone who is a victim of that lawful divorce is free to remarry. But let me remind you, again, divorce is not commanded. It is a concession, and it should always be the last option, even after sexual immorality. It is a last resort. Here's what Christians should hope for and labor for. They should hope and labor for repentance from the offending party, forgiveness from the offended party, and reconciliation between both parties. And let us remember, divorce is not the unpardonable sin. And this is not all the Bible has to say about divorce. I tried to pack a lot into today's sermon, but I could preach a whole lot more on this. And you'll have opportunity to hear some more on this later as we get to this Matthew 9 passage, as we go through this series. We'll talk some more about divorce So I'm sure there's lots of questions that remain in your mind. And I want to address just a few real quickly here as a conclusion. So someone might say, all right, in light of Jesus' teachings now, I realize that my divorce was not legitimate. I did not have a lawful divorce. What do I do? Uh, Should I divorce the husband I now have? Now that I've been remarried? Well, the answer would be no. There's never, Scripture never gives us the freedom to add sin on top of sin. What you do is you repent. And you seek and embrace forgiveness. And you seek reconciliation for everyone who was hurt by that divorce. Everyone. You don't add sin to sin by divorcing your current spouse. What if my divorce was unlawful and then I got remarried? Am I living in a state of perpetual adultery now? Hmm, it's a good question. Well, I would say no, and here's the reason. Though the relationship was precipitated by adultery, it is not perpetually in adultery. Now, I don't have a whole lot of scripture to back that up, but I would say based upon God's word and based upon 
the nature of forgiveness in the new covenant that once that sin has been repented of, that relationship was precipitated by adultery, but it no longer is perpetual adultery. Now, there are some who would disagree with me on that. How about this? How about ending a marriage due to something that's not in those exception clauses? What about physical abuse or substance abuse? Well, I think if there's physical abuse, friends, the Bible has made very clear that Romans 13 gives the state the grounds to go and take care of that person who's physically abusing you. In other words, call the police. Let the God-ordained means deal with that person who is, in effect, abandoning you by beating you up and then getting thrown into jail. Okay? What if it's a situation where the state can't intervene? Well, the church should. Listen to this. If the offending party claims to be a believer, you know what? He should be brought before the church for church discipline. And if he doesn't repent, then he should be put out of the church and treated as an unbeliever. And if he continues to abuse his spouse, he is practicing a form of abandonment abandonment by an unbelieving spouse. And in that case, when the victimized spouse has done everything in his or her power and has followed all the avenues of church discipline and counseling and in consultation with his or her elders, divorce should not be prohibited. But how about neglect then or emotional abuse? Well... That can get pretty subjective. But again, the answer to that is the church needs to be involved in discipline and in intense counseling. A spouse who has been mistreated should not have to go through that alone. Now, if it's a mistreatment that's putting her life in danger, she needs to get out of there. Call the cops. But a spouse shouldn't be mistreated alone. Marriage, friends, is a community project. Now let me conclude with a few considerations on how we should talk about this issue of marriage and divorce and remarriage. First of all, we must speak to our broken world from the same starting point Jesus did. Have you not read? In other words, we begin with the word of God and we're not ashamed of it. Number two, we must speak to our broken world as men and women who ourselves have been humbled by God's word. Number three, we must speak to our broken world with mercy and hope that comes from the gospel of Jesus Christ. 1 Corinthians 6. Do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived, neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor revilers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. And such were some of you. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. And friends, let me conclude with this. Sometimes I hear people say and they bemoan, oh, marriage is in danger, marriage is in danger, friends. You know what, no matter how hard our culture tries to redefine marriage, true biblical marriage will survive. For marriage is God's institution and it will exist until Christ returns. And what's more, marriage, as we said earlier, will reverberate into eternity. For all who are true believers in Christ are collectively his bride, and he's coming back for his bride, and what a wedding day that will be. Then I heard what seemed to be the voice of a great multitude, like that roar of many waters, like the sound of mighty peals of thunder, crying out, Hallelujah, for the Lord our God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us rejoice and exult and give him glory, for the marriage of the Lamb has come, and his bride has made herself ready. And it was granted her to clothe herself with fine linen, bright and pure, for the fine linen is the righteous deeds of the saints. And the angel said to me, Write this, Blessed are those who are invited 
to the marriage supper of the Lamb. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Lord, I just ask, Lord, this morning as we go into this time of response, which is going to be the participation in the Lord's Supper, Lord, help us to be people who are honest with ourselves. Lord, this supper is not to be taken lightly. If there be any unconfessed sin in our lives, and I would even challenge any in this room who have not dealt with a prior divorce properly, to be careful before they participate in the Lord's table today. To repent, to turn to you, and to do whatever they can to seek reconciliation. Father, help us not to shy away from your word. Because sometimes it's so sharp that we want to run, we want to get off the operating table and run away. Help us not to shy away from its piercing effect. But instead, give us the grace to sit there and take what you have to say to us. Because ultimately, it is a sanctifying piercing that happens in our heart. We want to be holy people. We want Harbors to be a church with holy marriages, holy relationships. Be a church filled with people who once were these things but are no more. So, Father, we ask that as we celebrate the Lord's Supper and we remember the shed blood and the broken body of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, that we would remember that this blood was shed and this body was broken for adulterers like everyone in this room. Some of us in here have committed adultery on the level of simply lustful desire. Some in here have committed adultery on the level of remarriage after divorce. Some have committed adultery perhaps in a much more direct manner. It may not even be known. God, do a work in our heart. Create in us a pure people who are repenting of our adulterous behaviors and bring us to the table clean and pure this morning. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.